Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says you're never too old to teach a young dog old tricks. I'm Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is a proud member of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, which you can find at boingboing.net. You might also enjoy Gweek, which is a weekly podcast with Mark Frauenfelder, the editor of Boing Boing, and many of the friends of Boing Boing. It's a lot of great geeky stuff, and they give you advice and tips about apps, comic books, and more. Today, I've got Gene McDonald on the show, and you may know Gene as one of the people at Smile Software, the folks behind Text Expander, PDF Pen Pro, and other products. In fact, Smile has even sponsored this fine podcast, for which I thank you. But the Gene is on today, not in a role as a marketing and PR whiz and somebody who knows the Macintosh world and the software world inside and out, but rather she's here in her capacity as one of the folks who put together a new nonprofit called App Camp for Girls. And it's not just uh, it's not just a nonprofit. She used a lot of the great principles that we've talked about in this podcast series about finding an audience, building an audience, fundraising through unconventional means, and then producing a product. In this case, it's education. Jean, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Glenn. It is such a pleasure. And that's the disclaimer I have to say is even though you've been a past and a future sponsor of the podcast, this is all about nonprofit stuff. So that's how we avoid the conflict <laughs> of interest. Uh, but, you know, I've known you for a long time, Gina. It's just great yeah. to see this new thing you're involved with because I know the passion that you bring to to everything. I mean, some people in the software world, they're like, well, it's just another product. It's a thing. It's like all of Smile's products have all this creativity and interest in them and you've always brought – and excitement to it. And so when I saw you and your colleagues launch App Camp for Girls as a concept, I thought, well, this can't but be great because you have all the energy to make something like this happen. I would love to know what the I – and mean, I know some of the general background about – and we could talk about some of the statistics about women in computing and engineering and other scientific and mathematical fields. But what was the thing that spurred you – to say, okay, we need to do something. I have to be involved in affecting change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really a very specific moment. Uh, in 2011, WWDC, I was uh, attending and I was in a session. I don't remember what it was about, but in one of these big halls in Moscone, a couple thousand people. And it just like clicked into my brain. I was like, okay, I don't see another woman Wow. In this room right now. I mean, I know they must be there somewhere because there were women. It's not like there's no women there, but it's the functional equivalent of no women when you can't see one when you're in a room that big. And you, as you know from going to Macworld, which is totally different, you know, Macworld's a pretty interesting, diverse group of uh, human beings, but WWDC is mostly guys, um, like more than mostly, it's almost all guys. So. It just struck me in a way of like, yeah, I've heard all the arguments why there's few, fewer women in computer science and they're not interested in software development, but I just don't buy that it's that lopsided. Um. I should point out, and listeners don't know, I'll put this in the show notes, but WWDC is Apple's worldwide uh, developer conference. And I mean, I know that programming tends to be a male-dominated field, but even that sort of – that's surprising at like another level. Like it's not just – you didn't say uh, – try to survey a thousand programmers and figure out what percentage were male or female, but you were actually at a conference. So it's one further level. It's the programmers in the Mac world and the iOS world who could either 
afford to or get their employers to send them and be out of town long enough to go. So a kind of self-selected group and you're in that group and you're seeing, you know, really can barely see any other woman in the room. Yeah. Yeah, it was it, it, on a visceral level just made – it's one of those moments where you just can't – I couldn't unsee that. Then everywhere – you know, for the rest of the week, I was like, yeah, you know. And actually, right in that conference, I tweeted out to, you know, to Twitter, obviously, my Twitter followers that I'm saying, like, I can't really see any other women in this session. And it makes me think, like, maybe it's time for App Camp for Girls. Like, I just made up the name on the spot, and it was based on a program I'm involved with here in Portland, um, Oregon, which is called the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls. And it's a one-week summer camp program where girls come, and they learn how to play an instrument, guitar or bass or drums or vocals, and they form a band and write their own song. And at the end of the week, we have a big showcase performance in a big theater in Portland. Um, so they get to be rock stars. They go from zero to rock star in one week. And I've seen what the uh, all-female environment does for all those. Uh, the girls really are kind of able to let their hair down and, and not be intimidated by, say, a bunch of guys like, you know, shredding guitar and, you know, doing make <laughs> or drums or whatever. And I mean, I know as a girl myself, it never occurred to me to get an electric guitar. I had a guitar. I thought electric guitars are for boys, really. You know, the only people I knew who had them were boys. And uh, it would never have occurred to me to be a drummer because, you know, drummers are all boys. And so obviously that's changed over time, but it hasn't changed that much. And uh, seeing what they do at Rock Camp is very, very inspiring because – uh, a lot of the girls, I mean, there's definitely girls from that um, summer program who go on and they either stay with the band that they formed that summer camp session or they might form a band with other girls they know and, and continue to play and play out, you know, and, and, and do gigs and stuff. And so I just thought, well, if we can make it like fun and short, you know, a short session where you get some kind of payoff at the end, maybe we could inspire some girls to think about becoming software developers. That's a great model. Well, see, that, and that tells a story too, is that, that you've, become, you've made uh, choices that it's not unconventional, but you've gone down paths that you're going to be one of the few women in a room also, right? I mean, rock uh, playing music and uh, there's a lot of women who play music, but as you talk about it, it's like, as you get older, it seems like the guys still have their bands or that you go to any pub and who's playing is usually a bunch of guys um, and the electrical instruments, all that. Like, I know that you've had a, a really long interest in, in music, as you were just saying, did that, did trying to make an identity for yourself as a musician, I mean, not even in the, say, the professional realm, but just playing for yourself, enjoying it, did that help shape how you got involved in the software world? Well, I mean, I think what, it, for me, it's just, you know, it's just another thing that I'm, interested in and that I know that I can enjoy even if I'm not like the best person in the room um and I so you know I enjoy doing little stuff software wise you know scripting or whatever on my own that I know is just for me but it's it's a it's a sense of satisfaction I suppose with something that you can figure out on your own (laughs) 
But is there is there a connection for you between uh, music and software? I know for some people, I mean, like Jim Dalrymple, for instance, has a great yes. example in the Mac <laughs> world. But uh, there's a, there's so many people I know who are both um, not necessarily programmers, but they're involved in some aspect of software or technology, and they're also very serious musicians. Like they're somewhere north, you know, north of amateur, south of professional. It's not their life or livelihood, but they really devote a lot of creativity and often perform. Do, do you see a connection there between those two realms? Well, yeah. I mean, I noticed the same thing that you do is that, you know, as I started to play rock, you know, rock and roll music and play with a band myself, um, I found, wow, everybody is interested in this. Of our our community of software geeks, you know, and, and Mac geeks and whatever, and uh, seriously interested in it and that like, have played in bands. Like I know so many people that I work with who also have or still do play in a band. And I don't really know, you know, I'm sure somebody has has come up with a theory about why this is because it does seem unusually high percentage of people who are super serious about producing music and maybe it's the geeky aspect of it it's like creating something especially everything you can do with a computer nowadays um, and you know record your own stuff and and get it out get it published without you know having to do anything more than pretty much click a few buttons on a website and you're you're a published musician so i'm not i i'm not really sure why but i definitely see what you're talking about yeah it's what i wonder i know there are some people who came from it because they got involved in trying to they were musicians trying to figure out how to make the technology work for them <laughs> and then they became technologists who were musicians in their spare time and a number of people that that happened to i was a graphic designer and i wound up becoming a, a journalist and a technology guy because you need computers to do graphic design and I wound up being better at that than the graphic design part, and I found yeah. my calling. Uh, th- so you had this genesis for an idea, and you'd already gone through what sounds like a parallel kind of experience of your own. I'm. Uh, this is uh, you know I always love the origin story. So that's part of the origin story. Is you had your shakabuku moment. You said, "Wait a minute, there's something going on here." What was the <laughs> the, the next step? Did you start to solicit interest, or did you research? Well, the next obvious step was to try to forget about that idea. Yeah, you got too much on your plate already, <laughs> right? And that just that didn't work um, because it, there's something about that notion that really clicked up for me. And then if I would mention it to anybody else, they would be like, oh, my God, yes, we should totally do something like that. And then so I, I really let it percolate for about a year and WWDC, you know, the conference was coming up again in 2012. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I've got to start talking about it now, you know, to people at the conference this, this year so we could, you know, start preparing for next year um that's when I, it it became you know it became a thing i told people i was doing it i made up my mind that we would put on something in the summer of 2013 that would involve girls and iphone app development it would last a week and that was the that was the bar mm-hmm. like i would say if we do that that's all i care about and everything else on top of it will be a bonus, but it was important to to set a doable goal. That was totally doable. I don't know, you know, how it would have worked out differently than it did actually work out this summer. But even on my own, I would be happy to sit down with 12 girls for a week and 
talk about app development and try to figure out a way to make it um, happen for them, even though um, I myself am not a developer in the sense of, you know, writing um, software on a regular basis full time. Well, you're, this is such a critical part, it seems to me, of fundraising and, and bootstrapping. And it, it, I feel like this fits in so neatly with how crowdfunding has developed is uh, you're not going out and writing grants. I mean, and you may eventually, I understand that's mm-hmm. actually probably, uh, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that, but but it's hard to bootstrap something where it doesn't exist already, right? Is that's, you know, <laughs> the first year of an organization is trying to get enough money cobbled together to have enough time and money to write grants for the next years of the organization. And this lets you short circuit it. But it seems like you did this really great thing, as you describe, is that you carved out a doable thing that didn't actually require too much money so that right. your goal was was you know $50,000 was your was your goal but you were an indiegogo so did you set it up was this campaign a any money received will be um will be accepted one or was there a threshold of $50,000 or bust um no i i think i don't know does anybody really on indiegogo do the the you know i make my goal or bust you know kickstarter few, style there's, there's a couple I, there are some um i forget what they're called like sponsoring organizations that are uh uh which you probably work with one as well that are nonprofits that work with uh mm-hmm. startup nonprofit or efforts or pro- mm-hmm. programs and a few of them i've been told require a realistic goal so that they don't wind up on the hook as the sponsoring group. So mm-hmm. some of them do require an all or all or nothing, but other, but I have seen, I mean, most Indiegogo things are set up that way, partly as a, you know, alternative to Kickstarter so that you can, you know, raise partial funds. But, but again, I think that's in the planning that you did, it's clear that you had a way to accomplish this really at almost any level of funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more funding, the more fully realized you could do it and the closer you could get towards creating the national organization. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, so we did have what they call flexible funding. We, you know, for me personally, I had some, I knew I was going to devote some of my savings to this project. You know, it was like, okay, I'm really serious about this and it has to, the money has to come from somewhere. I knew that I wanted to have iPod touches for all the girls to use. I didn't want them to only work on simulators. And, um, I knew that, you know, there would be some cost for the space and, you know, for snacks. I discovered this summer how important <laughs> snacks are when you're talking about middle school age girls. Blood uh, sugar I, reg- <laughs> regulation is really important, especially at that age. They're burning energy like they're giant yes. pits of fire in their stomachs. I mean, I could go on about it, but I will just say if you need snacks, go to Costco. I, I, uh, I learned that in the second session. Like, oh, yeah, they, they come prepackaged, all these snacks that girls love. Um, but the, you know, I knew there'd be several thousand dollars that I could potentially be on the hook for myself, but I didn't, I, I had a a lot of faith in the community that we would probably pull together at least enough to cover the expenses from last summer and, uh, what was leading up to that. And, uh, one thing, you know, you talk about, you know, applying for grants and, I didn't do that at all in the beginning, one, because I just wasn't quite sure how it was going to all work out, because rock and roll is one thing and software development is another. <laughs> the level of precision yeah. required to to succeed in software development is not quite you know on the same uh, flexible level, let's say, as rock and roll. So the, the thing that was important to me is that I, you know, realizing that people were really excited about this idea. I wanted to make 
it set it up such that the people who got it got the idea going were the ones who could say they they kickstarted it you know you know in the small k uh sense of kickstart that they got the money out to get app camp off the ground right. um i didn't want to i mean it's theoretically possible i could have found somebody willing to pony up x thousands of dollars to fund it for a year or something but i really thought that i wanted the the crowdfunding to be more than just getting money but also a buy-in from the community because without the community long term it's um it would be hard to sustain app camp well there's all these parts of it too it's uh, because when you say hey we're we're um you know we've got a barn we're going to put on a show it's a different thing than we built a barn with these funds for this other person and here's the tickets for entry right uh and That's i also good. thought i mean you have so many connections inside that well you know a and just going to embarrass you for a second everybody likes eugene that's just <laughs> that's just a fundamental thing and you have great parties at at, uh, at uh, mac world and wwcc so everybody everybody loves you for your parties and your good self too and so there's an enormous amount of goodwill towards you and greg and philip at smile um and um Again, I have to make this disclosure. Like, you know, past and future sponsor the podcast, but it's just there's there are companies that are full of nice people, and so you have this uh, great goodwill already going into this, and then you had cohorts who also same thing. Like uh, uh, should mention some of your colleagues here. So Natalie Austin and Kelly. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Guimont. Guimont. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, you had cohorts. You had Natalie Austin and Kelly Guimont who helped you um, sort of the, some of the core people involved in putting this together. And uh, and again, they have all this goodwill out there. And exactly. if you'd come to the community and said, we've already raised the money. We're doing this thing. Everyone would say, hey, polite applause. That's great. I really love it. Instead, <laughs> you said, here's this amazing thing that needs to happen. And you went out and there's all these folks in the Mac world and beyond who are um, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents – or children themselves, and who are who uh, want this to happen? Who say we all look at it and say we think we're living in this wonderful utopia in which merit is everything, and there's no sexism or genderism or cisgenderism or anything. But we also look in a room of a thousand programmers and see like five women in it too. So I felt like you're giving a position for uh, men and women in whatever role they were in out there in the community to say, yeah, this is great. And some of the, you know, some of the men have female children and some of the women right. have male children. It does, and I mean, I have two boys. I don't have, I don't have any girls. Right. And I'm like, this to me is so important for everyone. You gave me a place to come and say, ah, I can be involved and make this happen. And now I, you know, I donated and now I have a stake in it. I want this to be a success. And mm-hmm. the next time you need something or the next time something needs promotion because you're doing something, I'm going to step up just like all, you know, you have a thousand funders and then 50,000 other people who we're connected with or a hundred thousand or mm-hmm. a million from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's, uh, that's exactly right. And um, yeah, I, I think that it just made all the difference, you know, for people to feel like, Hey, if you agree with this idea, you know, because if you do, it will happen. If you think it's just ho-hum, it's not going to happen. And uh, so, yes, that was that was super exciting to see. I mean, it actually totally blew us away. We were not, oh, yes, we were not prepared for success. 
Let me pause in my conversation with Gene so I can tell you about Stack, one of our sponsors. It's a great way to bring print publications back into your life. Every month, they send you an English-language publication from somewhere in the world. It's a different, independent magazine. You never know what you're going to get next, but you do know it's going to be a beautiful, intelligent periodical you probably wouldn't otherwise have been able to get your hands on. You'll open the package every month and get a surprise. It's not going to be something you find on every newsstand. It'll be something interesting and delightful. You can find them at stackmagazines.com. That's stackmagazines with an S.com. But wait a moment for the discount code. Most of the magazines on Stack are made outside the United States. And they would cost $20 or more if you could find them at an American newsstand. If you use the Disrupt 13, that's Disrupt 13 coupon code, they're delivered to your door for less than $15 each. So go to stackmagazines.com, that's magazines with an S, enter offer code DISRUPT13 to get special pricing. It's $45 for three months delivery, that's 10% off, or $170 for 12 months service, and you get a whopping $20 off the normal price. Stack only ever sends out the current issue of any magazine. They handpick the best hard-to-find English-language titles for your reading pleasure. You know, I love print, even though I publish an electronic periodical, and I think this is a great way to explore the rich world that's out there, and maybe you'll find something you want to subscribe to. Give Stack a try to bring some eclectic wonder from around the world back into your life. Go to stackmagazines.com, magazines with an S, enter Disrupt13, and get your discount. Try it now and see what the world has to offer you in print. Now back to my conversation with Gene. Oh, that's funny. Well, and it, and it was, I mean, $50,000 is, I'm in the middle, as we record this, I'm in the middle of a yeah. $48,000 Kickstarter for something <laughs> not quite as noble. Although the writers will get paid. Everyone in my project will get paid right. for the book, however. But, uh, but you know, I'm not, in, I'm not uh, improving society precisely. I'm telling stories, and stories are good, too. But, uh, but it is, you know, it's daunting to say, okay... Uh, how do we break down this into uh, enough different pieces that we could get enough people involved and yeah. and make it happen? But and but you did. Now I, I'd love to talk a bit about the some of the structural stuff. So you were not a nonprofit when you launched this. You had a, a sponsoring group or an organization oh, yeah. that helped you launch this. Um, well, basically, in the nonprofit world, you can apply for nonprofit status from the IRS. Um, the 5013C status, but several people involved in nonprofits suggested to me that it would be uh, more prudent to look for a fiscal sponsor. Fiscal which sponsor. Is, ah. That's an actual thing. Uh, so that's a 5013C that takes you on as like, um, you know, under their wing, and they all the money goes through them. So they, you know, they will. Um, and there's very varying levels of of you know oversight and fiscal you know how fiscal sponsors behave um and what they do vis-a-vis the organization they're sponsoring but the the key part of that is that they collect the money as a 5013c mm-hmm. and they do not just hand it over to you you know like that would be <laughs> avoiding the tax regulations right right they uh so so yes yeah, so when we launched our indiegogo we could apply as a nonprofit because our fiscal sponsor is is a nonprofit, you know, and it's one of the organizations we could pick as the, um, you know, the recipient of the funds, and therefore, and 
Indiegogo has a, a whole setup for nonprofits so that there's an, another middleman organization, and I can't remember the name exactly, but they um, issue the tax um, receipts for tax purposes. Oh, that's great. I'd heard that Indiegogo, I know that Kickstarter, you can be a nonprofit there, I'm pretty sure, but um, it's a direct thing. I think you're responsible for all the accounting, and I know there are fiscal sponsors who work there, but it's it, Indiegogo seems much more set up to facilitate, and all the nonprofit stuff I think that I've contributed to, with one or two exceptions, has been at a, has been at, well, I mean, so the 99% Invisible podcast that just raised a huge pile of money in Kickstarter, Mm -hmm. they're technically associated, they're part of PRX, which is a nonprofit, but it's Mm -hmm. not a, um, it's not an educational nonprofit. It's more like a, they do services, they work for the good Mm -hmm. of society as opposed to for Mm -hmm. individuals. Um, But Indiegogo seems very well set up for this, this more particular kind of nonprofit experience. Yeah. They, I mean, when I, they have some um, number of, of, potential fiscal sponsors that are partners of theirs. Um, But it seemed to me at the time when I was setting it up that they were much more oriented towards like the film, Mm -hmm. you know, cultural arts industries and nothing seemed like a good fit for us. And um, in the meantime, I had been approached by an organization here in Portland that was really interested in the idea that happened to be 5013C tech education uh, foundation and uh they were willing to sign on as fiscal sponsor and that that was just one of those serendipitous moments because i was trying to figure out what am i going to do if we don't go out as a non-profit like how is the money going to be handled you know yeah yeah (laughs) i don't want it all to come to me that is for sure this is something this is actually this is a good sidebar is um i get people asking all the time who listen to the show and on twitter and elsewhere about you know some of the financial things to do with um, crowdfunding, and I th- I'm not sure if you haven't been inside it or researched it. It's not clear what you and I both know, which is that a payment processor handles the money for like an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter. They don't actually collect it themselves. So, in the case of like Kickstarter, which I know better, uh, they use Amazon Payments, and Amazon Payments actually you establish a relationship with them as the project creator. So if you're a nonprofit mm. and you already have the nonprofit status, you have to provide proof you're a nonprofit and Amazon does that. I'm a for-profit company. I had to send them uh, – I had to fax them. Secure fax, Gene. Did you know there's such a thing? So I, I, had did, a- <laughs> I did not know there was such a thing as secure fax, and that's saying a lot, this, as you know. <laughs> this is hilarious. Yes, yeah, that's right. I shouldn't vote. It's Gene is an expert in fax, given all Smiles fax-related products. I had to actually use PDF Pren, an unpaid solic- endorsement. I use PDF Pen <laughs> Pro because um, I had to take documents that were delivered to me as PDF from my bank and from the IRS and fax them to Amazon oh, to prove my, my company's existence. And it was hilarious. And uh, in any case, but so you, you register with Amazon Payments with Kickstarter and then Amazon Payments is a very specific kind of um, entity in the eyes of the IRS. And mm-hmm. when project completes, I'm saying this, Gene, Gene, you are, Gene already mm-hmm. knows this, this is for listeners, when the project completes, all the credit cards are charged all at once, and Amazon has all these rules, they charge it, and when you sign up as a project creator, you're actually agreeing at Amazon to give 5% of that to, say, Kickstarter in that case. And mm-hmm. so Amazon processes all the cards, they shoot Kickstarter its piece, but all of the card processing is as if you, as an individual or a corporation, were actually processing each of those yourself. 
and Amazon is just aggregating and handling it for you. So they give you this – I forget even the number. It's like a 1099K or something at the yeah. end of the year and they're obliged to report this all <laughs> to the government. So some people think about it as, OK, I go to Kickstarter Indiegogo. They collect this money and they cut me a check. It's like, no, no. This is actually much worse, much more complicated. <laughs> so you know, your very reasonable thing there is like if it were in the former model, it's like, well, maybe it would be reasonable for you to collect 100 percent of the money and then donate 100 percent to a nonprofit you'd set up. But this is – the tax issue of collecting money without being a nonprofit, that's yeah. for a nonprofit. Um, th- this is what uh, uh, Matthew Inman of the Oatmeal cartoon did when he right. uh, raised money. He wound up – he did sort out the tax issues, but he did it so quickly he accepted it as an individual and then donated it all. And um, and it was a little complicated, but but that is – that's what it comes down to. So in any case, I'm sorry. So this is all the sidebar for people who want to know the <laughs> – well, it's an important sidebar. Yes. I mean, it's not like <laughs> you can get in trouble. Well, this is the thing too. The bus driver who someone raised, the, or the bus monitor, right. she right. she actually technically did not owe a penny on having. I can't remember how many hundreds of thousands of dollars were raised for her because each of those payments is an individual payment, and if they fell below, they were gifts to her individually. Oh. They just happened to be aggregated. It wasn't a business, so technically, oh. she got you know ten thousand individual gifts and. The gift giver is the only person responsible for paying tax if they were, which they, they wouldn't be. Um, right. Anyway, so that's this, just a sidebar for people who don't know the ugliness there. But it's something <laughs> you have to think of when you're playing. So you found – so it's TechStart uh, Educational Foundation. You'd already been yes. talking to them and it turned out they were willing to be they, – they, did they say we'll, we'll take on this fiscal sponsor role for you? Yes. Um, I mean I was kind of – you know, it was like desperate dating. I was like really looking around <laughs> who who would be appropriate um, for that. And it was harder than I th- thought, like, you know, because the way people had described it to me, it sounded like, oh, okay, I'll find a fiscal sponsor. But it's not as easy as all that. Um, I mean, there's an organization, uh, I think it's called Tides, like the, you know, oceantides.org that will serve as a fiscal sponsor for a lot of nonprofits or not they're not nonprofits you know but they they work with this kind of umbrella of organization it super seems super well organized i was interested in that until i got to the page on their website which says they only work with organizations that already have at least a hundred thousand dollars oh that's interesting like in well now i have a hundred thousand but that's another story yeah i thought oh well that's obviously not going to work we're, we don't even know if we're going to have ten thousand dollars but but it's an interesting model and i you know so it's 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 an established setup such that you know there could be an organization like that that will offer their services as a fiscal sponsor but in our case um actually i mean it's such a mac community story at every turn i uh had an email from the uh one of the directors of techstart uh great guy named Chris Brooks, and he said, I heard you on the Mac Power Users podcast. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> he said, and we're really interested in that, you know, program, and, you know, maybe we could get together and have coffee. And I'm like, sure. And then, as it turned out, he invited another uh, woman along who started a nonprofit here in Portland called Chick Tech. Oh. Um, and her name, uh, oh, God, it escapes me right now, Janice um, Seeley, she... Um, they were acting as fiscal sponsor for Chick Tech. So mm-hmm. they had already done it once. And I said, oh, well, then <laughs> would you mind doing it for us as well? And, and basically it, it involves it, you know, they set up an account in their banking 
to uh, accept money on behalf of App Camp for Girls. And uh, any money, like all the money from the Indiegogo, just went directly to TechStart. All the money that we raised in other ways as well, like we had a, um, a benefit at this year's WWDC 2013 that was uh, a party, cocktail party, sponsored by... Uh, GitHub actually was one of the sponsors. Mm. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. And, you know, so a couple thousand from that went through Eventbrite directly to Techstart. And, uh, you know, things like that. Or I have Square now on behalf of Techstart. So when I was hitting up my my relatives to, you know, provide seed funding before the Indiegogo so that we at least had money in the bank to buy the iPods. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I used the I I had got Square, um, the payment processor, you know, um, and and it's attached to a TechStart account. So none of that money has ever run through my bank account or my hands at all. Oh, that's that's great. Now, is it your intent at this point to form as you expand and go? And I know your you know your ultimate goal is national. And next uh, summer you've got mm-hmm. bigger plans um, because of the amount of money you raise. Is your plan to form still to form a separate nonprofit, or are you going to yeah. that? So that's the ultimate goal. How, what kind of? Uh, I mean, I've known people who have gone through this process, but in the past, I mean, how much? Of a ordeal is it to to become the kind of nonprofit you want to as an educational mm-hmm. group? Um, I think it's a pretty you know big deal, which is why we haven't actually embarked on the paperwork uh, at all yet. Um, there's you know the filling out of the IRS stuff. Um, I think it wouldn't be. I think getting the status is not that tricky. It just depends, you know, timing wise. It can take time, you know, which is one of the reasons why I went with the fiscal sponsorship as well, because you you could apply for 5013C, but you wouldn't know when you would get it. Well, you have to register. My understanding, after having done a bunch of research about couch surfing, which had, which converted from a, a nonprofit to a profit because they didn't get IRS uh, 501C3 status, is that there's both like state and federal, like the state actually charters the nonprofit. Yes. But the federal government, the IRS, decides whether you meet not, uh, the rules there. And if they're in disagreement, you could have a nonprofit for which there's no way to get tax-exempt status yes. and uh, deductibility, which is – that's kind of what happened to Couchsurfing and they had to dissolve and become uh, a for-profit company to pay off their debts basically. <laughs> um, yeah. I think – well, I do – we are an Oregon um, state a nonprofit business. I mean, that's that's like a Secretary of State designation. Mm-hmm. If you look us up and on the Oregon State, you know, uh, website, you can find our listing. And again, you know, this is all legal work, right? Right, right. <laughs> this is something. There's a huge uh, book called the you know the Handbook for Nonprofits in Oregon. I I bought like you know trying to sort out what we needed to do, um, but. Ultimately, you're going to need a lawyer. You won't want to try to figure out this stuff on your on your own. I would say, because it's too nerve wracking. You know, you don't want to take the wrong step, and it's not always clear if you have no experience what the wrong step is. So, well, I know this is crazy too, but the government sometimes wrong. I'm no, yes. I, I'm not a Tea Party <laughs> person, but the government sometimes makes errors, and you need people to say, no, no, wait, they filed this form right. 
and you got it wrong, or they filed this form wrong, we want to amend it, and we need to appeal, and then you have to go through that process so that even if you do everything right and the outcome is wrong, it still might be okay. So, yeah. oh man, yeah. So, well, the, yeah. The, but so that's so that's your goal. And now, when you went out to raise the money, like so, you knew this ahead of you. You knew there's going to be costs in incorporating as a, or, or in getting nonprofit status ultimately, so you can run your mm-hmm. own affairs uh, independently in the end. But you had kind of this. I think interesting amalgam of two different goals. And sometimes when you set out with multiple goals, maybe even three goals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you which ones I think they were. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm really curious. Well, <laughs> you had, so sometimes when you set out with multiple goals, whether it's for a crowdfunding campaign or starting a business or selling a product, I mean, you've been in marketing for years. Uh, you used to sell books before that. You were a literary agent before that. You know that a clear, simple message is best. And you mm-hmm. had a clear, simple message, but you were both looking to get, um, to fund sort of some capital upfront costs uh, to fund the current year expenses involved with doing it so that you you didn't have to charge for the camp. And then you were also funding the future. You're saying whatever is beyond this, this is what we're going to use to, you know, pay for whatever costs it takes to become a full-fledged nonprofit and to expand and be able to afford to have the base on which to fund next year's operations. Did that confuse anybody? I know I wasn't confused by it. I mean, it was a bunch of things, but it was like, did, did you get the message there was clear enough that it was like, this is what we're doing. And then this is how we're doing it. Um, uh, I don't know if it was confusing exactly, but it definitely, it wasn't super crystal clear. Uh, I don't think to us or to people donating, I think part of the, you know, testament to how, enthusiastic people were about app camp for girls um we didn't get very many questions like you're posing here (laughs) at the time when i was you know so when i uh worked up the whole campaign for indiegogo i had a ton of advice uh from a good friend of mine named colleen wainwright who uh she goes her gnome de internet is the communicatrix. Oh, and <laughs> that's she, uh, in 2011, did a Indiegogo campaign to raise $50,000 for a girl's writing program in Los Angeles. And it was her personal project to raise this money for this group as her 50th birthday, to mark her own 50th birthday. So it was called 50 for 50. And, uh, and at the end of which, if she raised all the money, she would shave her head. Oh my gosh. And, okay. All right. So she had like, and, and I mean, Colleen has like, she was in advertising. She's an actress. She's got all, I'm a writer and everything. She's got all the, the great smarts about how to motivate people and how to communicate stuff. And so she said, as we were working on it, she's, you know, she was helping me write the description, which, you know, is, is a lot of work. I spent a lot of time uh, working on that. And she said, Yes, you have to explain why you want $50,000, right? Right, right, right. You can't just say And she wanted 50 because it was symbolic, which was fine. You know, that, that organization can use $50,000. In our case, we, we needed – so I had worked up a budget for, you know, sort of that initial costs that you were describing, like getting it – up to speed paying for this summer and paying for the costs of things like mailbox and various internet services that we need to pay for and stuff for to get us to next summer so 2014 and then knowing that I'm a, a severe underestimator 
you know, sort of rounding it up. And $50,000 was like the right number. And she said, you might want to consider posting your the budget yeah. that you've worked out. And I thought about it. and But I didn't do it. I can't remember. I, it wasn't for reasons of like not wanting to share it. But I felt like maybe that's going to be too much. You know, I said, well, if some, if people are interested, I could, you know, I could post it on our website. I can post a link to it, you know, for people who are really interested. Well, nobody asked. Nobody asked at all. I mean, I think Mac people know things cost money, you know. $50,000 is sort of an interesting number because that's like, that doesn't even cover the cost of making most apps. Like if you program right. it yourself, like if you need, if you wanted to contract someone to write an app, you might get a, a simple calculator out of it for that cost. Yes. And we know that right? you've been in the software industry. So you're like 50 grand, like, all right, Leah, like we can totally make that happen. Like that's, that's, you know, and everybody, I could see it spread to when you announced yeah. someone's like 50 grand, like that's ambitious, but it's not ridiculous. It's like totally yeah. doable because of the, the scope. And, and there's this other related thing, which is um, a lot of crowdfunding campaigns, uh, I mean, they fall into different camps. Some are, please fund this project so that everyone gets the benefit. Some are, please fund this project because we want to make a thing. And by funding the project, it gives us the resources to make the thing. And the reward is the thing. So, the thing, you yeah. know, that's the, the podcast example, like 99% Invisible. There are rewards for people who, as with your campaign, you know, that that contribute, but the reward is that everyone gets something. In this case, it's actually an interesting thing is your pitch is partly, let us help improve society by removing some of the impediments that keep, that seem to be keeping women at a young age from getting involved in these science, technology, education, mathematics, you know, engineering, so forth fields. This is a tool for society we're doing. And the specific instantiation is we're going to run a camp for girls. That will teach them how to do an app in a week. And so it was kind of – it was this interesting thing. It was like it's a very specific social good, but it wasn't a general thing. It wasn't like society will get better if you donate. You know, The environment mm-hmm. will improve. Like, no, we're actually going to do a camp and we're doing something concrete about an abstract problem. And I think that was part of the appeal. Uh, did, mm-hmm. did people talk to you about like you know when – they contributed. Did you get feedback about their motivations for supporting, like the idea of doing yeah. a specific thing as opposed to supporting a general concept? Um, I think not. You know, not not quite in those terms. Mm-hmm. But there was, first of all, there was a, a ton of women who said, "I wish we had this when I was a girl." You know, something specific, a camp that would you know get us on track in in the technology fields. Um, I think summer camp is a thing a lot of people can relate to. <laughs> so <laughs> they, you know, they can picture what a you know a summer program would be like. Although it was definitely, it was a leap of faith for everybody involved, myself included, to say we would be able to have working iPhone apps at the end of the week. Yeah, um. yeah, that's a, that's a pretty intense <laughs> thing. Like if you've gotten, if you had surveyed a hundred app developers who had all released apps or multiple apps and you said, can this happen? They probably would have been like, oh. 100% no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a friend of mine, uh, Dean Putney just did this book of, it's a collection of his great grandfather's uh, photos taken mostly from the trenches of World War One as a German soldier. Oh, it's a wow. fascinating thing. And he, he raised a, a 108 grand for it, I think something like that. And a very good crowdfunding campaign. But um, he 
finished the book. The book was done when the crowdfunding campaign finished and went off to the printers. And I said, Dean, you know that's impossible. I worked in print for years and years. That's impossible. You do. He's like, yeah, I didn't know it was impossible, so we just did it. And um, <laughs> there's something about that where if you ask people with too much insight into the things that go wrong, they will tell you no and maybe you wouldn't have done it. But instead, you did yeah. not ask that question, which was great. Well, I, I, I did talk to people about it. And what I discovered is the people I was talking to you know, no no app developers that I know have ever been to rock and roll camp for girls. Mm. So I actually I remember when rock and roll camp launched in Portland. It was in like 2001, and uh, I read about it in the Oregonian, and I thought, well, that's impossible. How could they do that? You know, like it takes for you know how can they go, take girls who have never played the guitar and give them electric guitars and put them in a band like in a week? That just well, they do. It's a super, super amazing thing. And, and uh, when, now that I've seen that, I had the benefit of knowing that something that I thought was impossible was actually quite possible. And really, I think, you know, once what I realized is people who thought it was impossible thought, well, how can you teach Objective C in a week? I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, well, we won't be teaching Objective C. <laughs> I mean, we 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 uh, are going to show girls how the whole process from beginning to end. We're going to make it as interactive as possible. We're going to make it very, you know, limited as you know in terms of what the finished product will be. Obviously, and let's see. <laughs> That's why we in the software business have the concept of beta and everybody understands. Let me take a break from talking to Gene to tell you about another sponsor, which is us. The magazine is kind of the parent of the new disruptors. And, you know, I host the show. I edit, publish, and own the magazine. And I have a ton of collaborators that I work with. There's the guests on the show. There's my audio engineer, Michael Warner, who handles the audio for new disruptors. Brittany Shute, the managing editor of the magazine. Tons of freelancers and artists and other folks who I work with every week to make things happen. And I had this idea that I wanted to share the work that we do in the magazine with a larger audience and take some of the great stories we tell, like John Patrick Pullen's tale of a small town in eastern Washington that's trying to build a 60-foot-tall lava lamp, or Serenity Caldwell, a mild-mannered editor at Macworld who by night dons a costume and doesn't exactly fight crime, but if you read her essay, you'll find out. There's tons of great stories, personal essays, reported pieces, things that are quirky, moving, fun, different This is what we do with the magazine. We've collected these stories into a book, about two dozen from our first year of publication. We're using Kickstarter to crowdfund the cost to make it happen. If you go to the-magazine.org slash book or go to kickstarter.com and search for the magazine, you'll find our campaign. We're producing a hardcover book that's going to be quite beautiful. We wanted it to be a keepsake. There's also an ebook version with no DRM. You can pledge today, and when the book comes out in a few months, you'll get a copy with our thanks. This is something I believe very strongly in, telling stories, telling stories that involve people and things and technology and wonder, stories that are great if you're curious, if you have a technological interest and you don't want to read just about technology, but you want to read about how things affect people's lives. That's what we do at the magazine. That's what I do here at The New Disruptors. And you can help us make this book by essentially pre-ordering a copy. Go to the-magazine.org slash book or to kickstarter.com and search on the magazine and you can pledge to get either the ebook by itself or a bundle of the hardcover book and the ebook. We also have some awesome higher value rewards that include fine art prints from some of our artists. 
a sponsorship on this show, and even site visits from me, Lex Friedman, Chris Higgins, or Jason Snell. So help us keep telling the stories we like to tell. Go to Kickstarter and back the campaign today. I really appreciate it. I'm speaking for myself as someone who leads all these endeavors and for all the collaborators and partners I'm involved with. Thank you. Now back to my conversation with Gene. There's also, I mean, I think you get to teach them the benefit of uh, the collaboration that happens in the software industry. I mean, that's happened at every level of what you're doing here is, is you said, we have this great idea that we think will improve life for everyone. Because I mean, I, I hear this all the time from um, both the male and female side of the, of the business equation, who it's it, the way to think about not having uh, equal or any, whatever the proportion of representation should be of men and women in technology, whatever that is, is that if it's not 50-50, you're excluding this huge audience of creative people who could be contributing to these fields. Yes. So we all lose as a result of that if people who could be contributing wind up doing something that is not necessarily best suited for them, you know, who are turned aside from, as opposed to, and there's nothing wrong with the fields that people go into. It's more that if you are shunted from or never exposed to a field in which you'd have great success and great personal fulfillment and also advance, you know, society, technology, <laughs> culture, yeah. whatever. So it comes from that standpoint. But, but, um, and now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, I mean, I just want to jump in on yeah. that and say it's more than just like, well, it would be a loss to the app store. You know, it's a loss to, you know, women of the future. This is a field that's like definitely on the forefront of the economy and the culture in a way that other things are not. And so I would say having no women in this very important field is a social issue that um, – Especially when you look at all the discussion around, you know, women and, you know, what their roles, you know, work versus family versus society, that they don't go into this field that can potentially, you know, definitely support a family and support a family on a fairly flexible schedule if you play your cards right, you know, that they don't have that option because they'd never thought about, you know, doing it when they were girls and they just thought of, of computer stuff as being a boy, as they called it, they call it boy heavy, boy heavy, uh, boy heavy uh, uh, endeavor, and um, that's how it is now. I mean, all of these girls mentioned how happy they were to be in a group with girls, you know, that had the same interests as they did, and um, not be the only girl in a class of boys. It's it's also I would say that you know because society has changed, at least in the you know Western world and America particularly. It's an issue of it, of independence, right? Is that if you can only make thirty thousand dollars in a traditional female job of the future, and you mm-hmm. can make one hundred fifty thousand dollars in a traditional male job of the future, then how much more? You know, do we go back to a a new differentiation in which women are dependent on men, or they have to live in near penury and poverty because <laughs> they've been shunted aside at a young age from careers that would let them, uh, you know, support themselves as they decide what to do. A lot of people get married later. I mean, the average age of getting married, people have different patterns about cohabitation and long-term relationship. And this benefits society also by giving women the ability to have a career that gives them the same power in social terms as men have. I mean, in great or, mm-hmm. or more equal numbers than they have now. There's certainly yeah. women working in the field. I know what I was thinking about before collaboration. So the, the top to bottom part of the industry is like from the point of view of even saying we want to do this thing and having all these people you know throughout your whole career and people you don't know also come forward and say, 
this is a great goal. We want to support and make this happen and, and we trust mm-hmm. that you can do it. But then there's the like software libraries, right? Like that's a form of collaboration. <laughs> yes. I, we all deal with this all the time. I'm a kind of a hack programmer and I can't tell you, you know, it's like I'm always downloading something from, uh, you know, Pear for PHP. Or I'm using LAMP uh. products. I'm, I'm using uh, uh, CPAN for Perl and there's all these libraries and, and then there's the programs, the higher level stuff. There's all this stuff that's – a GitHub is a paid service but they have free levels. There's all this collaboration that is – that it's not a male or female thing, but it's something that I think underlies the whole industry. And you're giving girls an entree into that as well by Mm – even though this is just a week-long thing and even though you're relying on some prefabricated parts, that's what everybody's doing, just at different levels. Yeah. I think that we we just want them to see like how – another thing that was important to us and Natalie, you know, is especially – passionate about this as well. Uh, so Natalie is a full-time iOS developer, a uh, young woman who I met at WWDC, even though she lives here in Portland. Uh, <laughs> and she, well, she um, and I should say she works for Smile now. Uh, that's new as of the last oh, couple of weeks. Oh, yes. that's great. Well, there you go. The circle <laughs> <Yes>. is complete. <laughs> I know. So I feel, you know, that, that um, it was uh, you know, in very cynical terms. Well, wow, we got an awesome programmer out of this, <laughs> no matter what happens. <laughs> but she, Natalie and I uh, were... Often, like people would say, well, why don't you just use this such and such wrapper or this thing that creates iPhone apps out of this, you know, or you can, why are you, and we're like, we're going to use Xcode, which is the tool that Apple gives free, yeah. you know, to developers. It's, it's complicated software in some ways. Obviously, it's not for the layman to just pick it up and start using it. Although, with storyboards, which is, you know, a feature of, of uh, Xcode, a relatively new feature of Xcode that lets you drag out, you know, screens for your and buttons and, you know, sort of easily program in some interaction into your app. Mm-hmm. You could argue, I mean, it's still not for the layman, but uh, it's more accessible than it used to be. But we were really adamant that we're going to use the tools that that actual professional programmers use. The girls were not phased by Xcode at all. That's awesome. They complained that we didn't give them enough time in Xcode. That was pretty much one of the, the, the you know, when we did surveys and said, what would you do differently? You know, what, should, what, what could be better? And they're like, more time in Xcode, I more time that. to like, we want to learn more Xcode. Okay. Yeah, you know, you have to tell me more about the actual thing. I realize we've been talking structurally so much because that's what this show is sort of about is how you make things happen. But but um, you did two one-week sessions and you, mm-hmm. you fulfilled – so both in both times you got apps done in a week. Yes. That's fantastic. And 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 how well, – so so was this thrilling beyond belief to do this? This just sounds so it great. It was so cool. So we actually did a one-day camp during spring break to just oh, this try your, it out. this is your beta, right? You what we camp. called alpha camp. Oh. No, we did alpha camp, which was just three girls, Natalie, Kelly, and I, one day. And we took them from brainstorming and, you know, design and looking at how you wireframe an app to Natalie helping them to build an app that afternoon. It was very simple. They had this idea for a dictionary app. And, you know, Natalie wisely whittled it down to basically a screen that you could enter a word into. And then, you know, that would add the word to a list. And you could see look at the list. And 
they thought that was the coolest thing ever. I mean, they were jumping up and down, as were we, that they had done something that was working on a phone. Oh, my gosh, you know? yeah. And it was like – and everybody who's done any kind of programming has that moment. And definitely I remember when I did my first iOS program myself when I was preparing myself to, to study for a week at Big Nerd Ranch because I was prepping for my own, you know uh, – edification to make sure I could understand the process. You make that first app and you get it loaded on the phone and, you know, not to go into all the horror that is provisioning. Um, uh, yes, let, let us not talk about ever. <laughs> I think the, the podcast would explode if we did that, but yes. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that you, you, you get it running on your a device and you just want to, I mean, you want to just dance around the room. I think that was my experience personally and definitely the girls had that same experience. And so, Yes, so we did it. We we saw that we could do something that they thought was cool in one day. You know, they were not phased by the fact that the app wasn't like something that was going to make a million dollars on the app store. They were they liked what they had. You know, it had all their design choices in it, which I call the style of leave no font behind. <laughs> um, <laughs> the MySpace style. Yes. Um, but they they really um it was theirs you know they had they had done it and so yeah in the first first session um we didn't know if we could get it done with 12 girls and um Natalie had at that point you know built a a template for a kind of a quiz app and it was just you know a, a framework upon which the girls could put all of their content come up with an idea for a personality quiz and do all the artwork and to decide on the grading and you know the results write the results and and then she sh- showed them how to put a lot of stuff in t- right into the you know the implementation files like so they got to see and actually you know enter stuff into those um files so it wasn't just you know WYSIWYG or storyboarding they also you know did um see how the code worked and and get their hands on it a little bit and that I think is really important um but yeah so it worked in the first session and we we did make the first session we called it beta and we did not charge for it because I just was mainly just too nervous to charge for something that I had no idea would work or not I didn't want the extra pressure I knew we couldn't charge enough to cover the costs anyway but the plan always was for the second session to be like a regular camp and with there to be an actual tuition. And there was, um, it was $300 for the week. Um, which I can tell it's just competitive based on, based on my knowledge of summer camp pricing with my children, especially for actually a science or, you know, like a STEM related camp, $300 is a very, is a very reasonable price in the Northwest for a week. Yes. Uh, Is that the, um, did you have scholarship also? Was that part of your funding? Yes. Okay. I mean, we we knew we would we would not turn anybody away because they couldn't afford. I mean, we had to turn lots of people away just because we didn't have the space. Right. But we didn't pick the the girls based on ability to pay because we had no idea. We just mainly just picked them first come first serve. That was also. I mean, every stage, so many eye opening experiences and things that I didn't really really anticipate that there would be 50 girls who wanted to come, you know, for, and then we have spots for 12. There's this great thing happening, which is that I, you know, you launched yours at the same time as I I think there may have been, there was some before 
you, clearly. Yeah. But, um, you know, the New York Times and the New Yorker both ran stories. Well, the New Yorker ran a story that particularly uh, was about you folks and uh, about yes. the first session. But the New York Times later that year – well, actually, I think they've run a few. I just found one um, from October. There are – there's girls that code. There are girls who code. Mm-hmm. There's uh, uh, a lot of STEM-related organizations now focused on girls, uh, college-age women, and then young women entering the field, mentorship, early training – early exposure because the research is there that shows that girls are not, you know, this is, I'm just going to say it because this comes up. It's not about aptitude, right? It's, Mm -hmm. or interest. It's about steering. And there are a lot, I talked to a, a, unfortunately, relatively large number of people, mostly on Twitter, not in real life, the people I know (laughs) who, who think that the outcome demonstrates uh, what aptitude is. Are women better at these things or less good than men. And I'm like, well, A, all the computers before about World War II were women because they ran the calculators and they ran all the computer machines. They were the operators. And it became a male (laughs) – programming became a male profession when it started to pay well, not because of anything to do with brain chemistry. And and the B part is that you look at those numbers that are terrible about the number – the percentage of women going into computer science degrees dropped from 1984, I believe it was in the mid-30 percent to below – it's well below 20 percent now. And there are more people getting consumer – or computer science degrees. I realize the pool is larger. So that in absolute numbers, I think there may still be more women today than 30 years ago getting degrees in absolute numbers. But as a percentage, there is no explanation for that in terms of anything except what the research shows, women getting discouraged at a young age from pursuing fields because they're perceived as ones that they cannot succeed in and nobody wants to enter a field in which they don't think they can succeed. No, it's true. And I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember when, first of all, it, beca- it was a big deal when like women became like 50% of the student body of a college. Um, yes, it's not like 50, it's now like, it's six cents. Yeah, right? I think it's like fifty six percent of college <laughs> people attending four year colleges in America are women. I mean, which yes. again tells, so, tells you something. <laughs> that tells you something. Yeah. I mean, it was hard to find a woman doctor when I was young. Mm-hmm. It was I didn't know any women lawyers. I mean, today the idea that you would you know find only a small percentage of of doctors or lawyers being women is is pretty laughable, but. It was a real thing. So I have the faith, at least, to know that there was nothing wrong with women's brains when it came to the law or the or medicine. And uh, I think computer programming, I don't know. It, there's so much going on. And it just seemed to me that, like, well, let's try this one little thing. I don't care what the research says or what the theories are let's just try this one thing one stick in the sand and but (laughs) but you're but you're part of this is why i don't want to and i don't want to diminish anything you've done and then and you know this is part of your goal to become bigger and bigger is is there are lots of people who said it's time to put a stick in the sand we can do something practical and we might not be able to address a million girls all at once but we can do 12 at a time and enough people doing 12 at a time becomes thousands and tens of thousands you're seeing these stem programs really go after um after school programs and, and grant mm-hmm. funds funded programs that are really, if they're not specifically intended for girls as your program is, they are uh, doing everything possible to ensure that there's no steering away. So they're not mm-hmm. actively out there grabbing women in, but they're also making sure that the the playing field, the decision making process that leads parents and kids go down a course, and parents are obviously part of it. Um, 
are you've set the initial conditions such that you wind up with a more even mix. And, and I've seen my, you know, my kids do some summer camp, and uh, they did a robotics thing that's from this big commercial group that does a million sessions nationwide every mm-hmm. you know, week. Yeah, and, I'm familiar with them. Yeah, and it was about half. It was half girls in the, the yeah. session I saw it's not weird I mean it, and it's also like as a parent if I had girls I would be pushing them I'm such a geek I would be totally pushing them yeah. absolutely into all this stuff you know and uh, it, it's not that the boys go naturally into it or not in my experience with kids of this age it's just that it's partly all those expectations so by setting this up and saying we have it it's so fantastic that you were and, and also a problem right you were oversubscribed so what do you do when you're you you know about demand from the marketing standpoint yes. you have demand for this gene so what's the what's the future bring when you have 50 girls for a 12 girl slot what comes next well uh, the big gating factor of the whole thing is finding the volunteers i mean that's the other thing that we feel really strongly about is that it needs to be an all-female camp we we have lots of friends who would be great instructors who are guys but it just does not feel right to bring in guys you know when we're trying to say girls you can do this too (laughs) so but finding people like natalie is that this is the problem right they're not they're not there it's a chicken and egg problem and what i recently you know realized is that part of our mission has to be to train women as well Um, because we won't have any counselors if we don't have women who aren't willing to at least, you know, take a a stab at being iOS programmers. And so, you know, there's a lot of outreach to women as well at this, you know, this juncture. Uh, There's an organization here in Portland called Code Scouts, um, which is like a mentoring organization for women who want to become programmers. And um, I've been talking with them about some... Uh, joint things we might do to train up some of their members so they could be counselors at app camp um, and given enough time after two or three years mm-hmm. you'll have your campers will be old enough to come back and yes. volunteer at least in part and then in five or six years they'll be grown-up programmers working full-time and, and they can yeah. come back and, and they can and donate take it money over. to right. us exactly <laughs> but that's but isn't that funny that's the, the bootstrap thing is if you can keep it going long enough and bring enough people in now, it really will. If you're successful, even yes. modestly so, then it does – you do sustain that volunteer part and you do start to build that audience of exactly what you want and what you're trying to foster. Uh, yes, exactly. And those girls teach other girls too. That's the other thing is once you have yeah. a whole – you'll have dozens and dozens of, of kids across Portland and then it becomes – and then it's like then the boys and girls can be coding together because the girls – feel like they're not being excluded. It feels like it's something that's open yeah. to them. And then it does, you know, foster and, and grow on itself. Yes, I, it's one really true. And, you know, I mean, at some point, I, I I would like to get to the point where we feel like, yes, let's do a program that's not gender specific. Because <laughs> everybody would like to learn more about apps. I mean, even for boys, there's nothing like app camp for girls. I know that's as a father of two boys. That's my, my one thing. I'm like, I'm like, man, I'd love it if the kid. But you, it's there. But there's so many. It's funny. And, I, and again, as the as the father as a father and a parent of boys is, I see how there are a million little things, a million little turn left, turn right, or veer a little left, veer a little right, and you see how even you know what's. So I feel very proud as a father that my children are completely they they 
have no sense of when they read these books and it says, well, this girl couldn't play baseball or or they read something about why there's some discrimination. They are baffled. They are completely <laughs> – they don't say, oh, girls are like that. This isn't even like a meme in their school or what – and there are two different schools. That is awesome. But I also see how there's just all these tiny, tiny little places where you can go this, that. And a collection of being pushed a little to the left pushes you all the way to the left. You know, a little to the right pushes you all the way to the right. And you don't need that many. So – you have to get to a point where you feel like we're all coming together in the middle so everyone has the ability to make choices without being steered away for arbitrary reasons. Some people have aptitude at coding or not that's different from being you know, of a gender or not. Right. I'm preaching to the converted. <laughs> uh, well, I know. We, we, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's funny how you start out thinking you're doing one thing mm. and it just evolves. Um, and I have this notion I'm sort of working out for myself of app camp for everybody because everybody wants to do it. Uh, parents, you know, like women, men, like the, and, and it's starting to, to dawn on me that this goes beyond just getting some girls interested in becoming software developers. There's also this level of empowering everybody to understand that these apps that, you know, you have 200 of on your iPhone don't come from Mount Olympus, you know, (laughs) and descend onto your phone, but they are something that you too can, um, potentially participate in. You know, you may not, um, become a full-time software developer, but you could probably build an app if you put your mind to it, uh, even a really simple one. Well, for your, ne- for your next trick, convince people that 99 cents is not the appropriate price for oh. an app and then that it, you actually could be, <laughs> that, that would be the That would be the real thing. Jean, thank you for coming on and talking about App Camp for Girls. Yes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, the chance to chit-chat with you, one, and uh, two, to talk about this subject, which is so... I'm so excited about it and so many people are as well. Well, it's it's terrific and people can find it. I'll have it in the show notes, but it's appcampnumeral4girls.com. Can people donate now if they want to? <laughs> um, yes, they can call me up and I have my square. <laughs> um, you know, I that's like on my list of we need we do need to like make it possible for people who missed the Indiegogo who still want to donate. And uh, we are working on a couple of, you know, sort of side projects that will allow people to donate and maybe get something cool in return um, on a regular basis. So people should go to App Camp for Girls and sign up for your mailing list is what you're saying. Yes. And then they can be informed when things happen, where the next camps will happen. And if yeah. they're in Portland, Oregon, and they have female children, they might even try to apply for a slot. Yes, or elsewhere. We, we, we are going to do it somewhere in 2014 besides Portland. Um, and I can't say much more about it yet because, uh, you know, we're working on the details, but that was really what we committed to in that in doubling that Indiegogo uh, target was that's what the money will go towards is, is moving beyond Portland. That's great. Well, I'll look forward to hearing the news and, and thanks again for being on. <laughs> thanks again. You can now support the production of this podcast directly by becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Support us at a level of $1 or more per podcast. At higher levels of support, you get our on-air thanks and more. We'll be adding more patronage benefits over time. You can also sponsor this show. 
visit podlexing.com, that's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. We're also a happy part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.